You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Your book, Testosterone. Um, oh, that's quite bad lighting. Let me let me get a better. There we go. There we, there go. we go. There we go. There we go. The story of the hormone that dominates and divides us. Um, the first thing I would just love to say is, you know, I do for this show. I do have to read a lot of books, and yours. One of the things I noticed about it, what a beautiful style of writing. I thank I, you. Yeah, thank you. I've actually heard that a lot. And that is one of the things I feel most proud of because mm. it's much more fun to read books that are easy to read where you kind of want to keep going. And a lot of science books, you kind of plug away because you're interested in what you're learning, but it's not um, always super engaging. So I really appreciate that. Um, I worked hard. A lot of books, which I read, they have a... Uh... They, they can have a mindless, you know, just a drone to them, you know, just long sentence after long sentence. But you you really mixed up your sentence lengths in there. And I, I, I noticed. I oh, did I? It. I didn't really think I didn't think about it was, that. It was beautifully, okay. beautifully done. Well, thank you so much. I liked it. I liked it. So the book, obviously, you know, as people can see from the cover, is about testosterone. Uh, perhaps let's start from the bottom up. What is testosterone? <clears throat> Most people know that it's a hormone, but hardly anybody knows, well, I, I don't know who your audience is, but most people have no idea what a hormone actually is. Um, so it's a chemical substance and it's like a neurotransmitter in a way. It's a chemical communicator. And what's interesting about the difference between hormones and neurotransmitters is neurotransmitters are the communication system and your central nervous system, which are responsible for basically the thoughts that I'm having now, the way I'm moving my hands around like this, and your ability to hear what I'm saying and make sense out of it. Those are all really fast on-off um, actions of neurotransmitters, and they travel along sort of and between neurons. So they can only go uh, basically on a kind of circuit, like a set of train tracks or something. And they have kind of very, like I said, very fast actions and they their actions exterminate quickly. So hormones are a whole different class of chemical communicators and they are produced by your endocrine glands. And we know what some of those are. Joe, do you know what any of the endocrine glands are? Leo gland? Did you say pineal? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. That's right. And you're sitting on a pair, almost. My nuts. <laughs> yes. So you're nuts. <laughs> and that's the one that I'm really, those are the glands that I'm uh, primarily concerned with in the book because they produce testosterone. They're your main source of testosterone. There's also uh, other sources. Mine used to be uh, my ovaries, but I just got those taken out a few months ago. Oh. So I don't have that anymore. But uh, I still do have my adrenal gland and you have an adrenal gland. So in both of us, um, our adrenal glands produce testosterone and precursors to testosterone. 
for you, it's a pretty meaningless amount because your nuts, as you said, make so much. They make 95% of your testosterone, which is a steroid hormone. That means it can, well, whatever, it's a steroid hormone. And um, for me and for most women, well, actually not for me since I no longer have my ovaries, but for most women who have ovaries that are uh, functional, or uh, they're not, meaning they're not in uh, menopause and they are past puberty, the ovaries produce about a third of female testosterone and the adrenal gland and then other sources like fat cells can also produce um, testosterone. That's about one third, one third, one third ovary, one third adrenal gland, and one third kind of other sources. Yeah, that's three thirds. Okay. Um, so I just quickly mentioned that testosterone, first of all, it's an androgen, a class of um, steroids. And steroid hormones are different from protein hormones. Mm. So protein hormones, just say um, like insulin or luteinizing hormone are protein hormones. They're made of amino acids and they cannot just get into any cell. They act at the cell surface and they interact with specific receptors. And then steroid hormones like testosterone and estrogen are reproductive hormones or sex hormones can go anywhere like protein hormones. They can go anywhere in the blood, but they get into, they can go into every cell pretty much. So they can get into your brain and affect your behavior in ways that protein hormones can't. So those sex hormones can go anywhere the blood goes. They interact with cells all over your body. So that's very different from what neurotransmitters are doing. So any cell that has a receptor that interacts with any given hormone can respond to a hormone. And for steroid hormones, they'll get right into your cell and change the way genes are expressed. So they can usually increase the amount of protein produced ultimately from a particular gene, which is a really powerful effect. Um, but it's a slower effect, but it's like, it's a systemic effect. So one hormone testosterone can turn you from a little boy who doesn't ever think about sex to presumably, yes, you're a man now. And I assume that you think about sex and have it more than you did um, I don't know anything about your personal life, but more than you did when you were a little boy, right? And that's basically hormones orchestrating that entire transition. Neurotransmitters don't do that. Um, so, sorry, that was a long answer and you can cut as much out of that as you want. But what's interesting is that because steroid hormones can affect your body in these really profound ways and your brain um, and the way your brain functions and the way it develops, it can shape males in particular to reproduce as efficiently as possible because you can't just have the body. You can't just make the sperm. You can't just be strong to fight other men for mating opportunities. You have to want to do it, right? You have to be motivated and you have to be able to read cues in the environment and to um, help inform your behavior. And that's essentially what testosterone does is it coordinates that those effects in the brain with effects in the body to maximize male reproduction. And it does it starting in utero to develop the uh, brain and the reproductive system. And then um, it does it again in this really profound way through puberty. And then it maintains and sort of runs all that stuff uh, after puberty. Does testosterone have 
any impact on why men live lo- live less than women? Yeah. So why they have shorter lifespans on mm. average? Yes. Yeah, it does. And one, there's a couple reasons. So one is the effects on the brain. And um, so your listeners might want to think about how effects on the brain would result in a lower lifespan. And you can just take a moment to think about behavior and sex differences in behavior, the way young men behave versus the way young women behave, right? Just think about driving or, um, you know, basically taking physical risks and being impulsive, relatively impulsive compared to uh, women. So one of the reasons that the average lifespan is shorter is because men take more physical risks. And that includes uh, engaging in violence, which is a physical risk. Um, They do that far more than females and are likely to die uh, younger. But they're also apt to engage in impulsive behaviors that negatively affect their health. So it's not just accidents or it's not just um, engaging in physical aggression. It's also smoking, taking drugs, drinking, et cetera. Those are all um, more risky behaviors. And then the, and I I should just say, those behaviors have to do with with male reproduction. It's not that those are necessarily going to increase male reproduction in today's environment, but in terms of the evolved psychology, that is how that kind of plays out in today's environment. And testosterone has a lot to do with why men engage in those kinds of behaviors relative to women. But the other effect is that, um, testosterone imposes costs on the body and on health and longevity. So if you're, if you have high testosterone, it it depends the kind of environment you're in, but high testosterone can, um, require more calories, say, to maintain muscle, or it can also have negative impacts on the immune system. And there's this is a complicated area of research, but there are some health risks that are higher in men simply because they have higher um, testosterone. What if I were to, for instance, castrate, not that I ever would, a yeah. cat or a dog? Would that oh, extend yeah. their lifespan? Um, I believe that it does, but mm. I... Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know the uh, exact science around that. My intuition is that it does. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Humans should not. No, that's a great question because we would have data, of course, on uh, trans. It's not, you know, you could look at people who transition Mm. um, and take the opposite sex hormones transition there uh to living as the opposite sex but actually that's not a perfect test case because they're then on on exogenous hormones for the rest of their lives and tend to have other differences from uh people who don't transition so right right well perhaps something to think about for the people in silicon valley that really want to uh, extend their lifespans (laughs) you mean by oh but you know there are people who take testosterone mm. too who might have lower testosterone who seem to um Joe Rogan I don't know if you know sure like he's he, huge obviously in media but he's huge physically mm. he's just he's a big like super strong guy he seems to be very healthy he takes a lot of testosterone and I don't I you know maybe men like him would outlive outlive men who don't but these are all questions there's a lot of um 
good questions in there. Yeah, um, I'd love to say I'd love to pick up on page nine. You said that you longed to understand men. Uh, is this a a quest that you have solved? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't think men will solve the quest of understanding women somehow. Um, <laughs> partly because they're not they don't have the tenacity necessary to do it. But men are not that complicated. Sorry, I, I, you know, they're complicated, but not, uh, yeah, I don't think men in, in a lot of ways are as complicated as, as women are. Um, and again, everything I say is on average right. and what does it mean for it to be complicated? But I think it, it means in this case, what drives men, um, seems pretty clear on average. And, you know, in, in some sense, it's what drives all of us, right? It, it's, we want to be loved. We, most of us, um, want close connections to be good at something, to be proud of ourselves, you know, to have family, men and women all want those same things. But in I think sex is what it all boils down to, um, and status. And, and that is because we are designed by natural selection to reproduce. The sexes have different strategies that they use on average to accomplish, you know, efficient um, reproduction. And so females have one set of strategies. And I think those strategies are somewhat more complex. Well, the, I don't know. Sorry. I don't know if that's true. Um, those strategies are different from the male strategies, which differ primarily in terms of desire for sex with especially different partners and doing whatever is necessary to achieve that. That is just the evolved psychology. That doesn't mean that that's what everybody is doing um, because we can control our behavior, of course, and we can set goals and achieve them like being monogamous um, and having a family and, you know, investing in our children. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think it it really helps to understand that Especially say if men are staring, if some men are staring at women's breasts, right? Which men are prone to do. Uh, that's very bothersome to a lot of women. Some women like it. Some, most women don't. And they might think, wow, that guy is such an a-hole. Um, but if you understand, if like you could, I could have been born a man. And if I were, maybe I'd be looking at women's breasts, even if I'm trying not to, even if I'm a good person, it might be very hard for me not to do that. And I think that kind of perspective is something that can help women. We have to set boundaries and we have to enforce them, but we can still understand these differences and what motivates the opposite sex. So that is what, that, that's one of the things I learned from writing the book and to talking, especially to men, uh, about what does in fact motivate them. And it's not all about breasts. A lot of it is about having kids and being a good husband and, you know, an involved father and somebody who's very productive at work or, you know, um, things that we're all concerned with. Right. And a beautiful quote of yours from the book, you say, nothing we know about testosterone or sex differences implies that we have to accept current levels of sexual assault, harassment, discrimination, or coercion. But your point there is that perhaps uh, an empathy for sex differences doesn't necessarily mean that that 
has to imply into discrimination and whatnot. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes, no, that's exactly right. So Hmm. I'm so glad you said that because there's a, yeah, I think empathy is important and it's also important for helping us solve the problems that we face. So first of all, we have to recognize that there's a lot of positive aspects to masculinity that are not on average present in um, female behavior. People really don't like me to say that kind of thing, but I think it's true. So I'm going to keep saying it until someone can convince me that it's not true. Um, And I think it's important if we deny that there are any sex differences, that means we deny that there's something special about being a man. And there is. And that's why I'm married to to a man, because he is not like me. I don't want to marry someone who's feminine and in in emotional and all the ways that I am feminine. I want someone who's a little bit more British and, and, and stoic. And um, yeah, it's kind of a rock for me. And he's also happens to be taller and, and stronger and that's all. And he's a great dad. And he roughhouses with my, I roughhouse with my son now too, um, more probably than I used to. But, um, you know, there are ways that he engages with my kid that are ways that I don't engage. All of that is really positive. And um, so I think having empathy helps our relationships and can help us solve the, you know, negative aspects. It's not of masculinity. It's really the extremes of male behavior that we have to deal with. And I think that's an important distinction because it's not masculinity that causes men to be, say, super violent Mm. um, because most men are not super violent, right? It's a combination of, yeah, it's more common in men, uh, but it also has to do with our culture that uh, kind of allows certain behaviors to even take place. You dedicated the book to your son. I, I assume Griffin's your son. Yes, I'm guessing. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, do you have any worries about perhaps the uh, the role of men, this idea of masculinity um, in this kind of world that he will be kind of brought up in? <laughs> no, I'm crying already. <laughs> yeah, go on. That, that's just that's the just role... my you know, I now I'm not worried. He, I'm, yeah, I'm going to try to keep it together. Um, he's turning 14. Wait a sec. <clears throat> Hold on. <laughs> this is my little baby. No. <laughs> so I'm just showing you because, like, yeah. any mom, probably any dad, knows mm. how weird it is to have a baby and that. The kid is 14. Um, So, yeah, I was more worried before, but I think now that I'm seeing who he's going to be as a man, he's confident. um, He's not super. I'm pretty athletic and boyish in a lot of ways that he isn't. And um, he's not really an athlete. He's kind of, well, whatever. He's, um, yeah, I think he's confident enough in himself not to feel pre- so much pressure maybe to be um a certain kind of man so cuz i really want him to be whoever he wants to be and um as long as he has clean clothes and his hair looks good um he can you know 
he can express himself how he wants. But yeah, I, I do have a concern um, about standards of masculinity and how that can affect young men who are trying to figure out who they are and where they fit in. Uh, I wish that there were a lot more freedom for uh, boys and men to express themselves in all kinds of different ways in terms of their gender. And that is changing. And I think that's good. Um, but the, what I don't like is the messages that he has gotten about toxic masculinity. Cause I want him, this is where I get emotional. Um, I want him to feel good about who he is and what his drives are and what his feelings are. There's nothing wrong with any of that. And I don't ever want him to feel ashamed of, of what, of just being a man. And I want him to feel proud. And I, you know, what's important is how people act on those feelings. And that's something that everyone needs to learn from the culture, you know, in part and from their family. And, um, yeah, but I really think he, especially given what I do, knows that it's natural for him to have the feelings he's having, especially right now as a 14 year old. And there's nothing shameful about it whatsoever. Right. Right. I read um, uh, a, a book recently by Gabble Matley and he uh, said a quote in the book, which I loved. And he said, um, what is in you must out. And what he was kind of implying by that was that we all have certain urges within us. Uh, kind of certain drives, certain motivations, and that if those are repressed, then that typically tends to not lead to positive outcomes. Um, so I, I love the point, and I think that many people perhaps listening to this should listen to that. that like if you are feeling a certain way, if you are, as you said, you know, quite masculine and you do have perhaps some of these urges, you shouldn't feel ashamed of them. I'm not saying you should act on them. You right. know, um, but but you should perhaps not feel ashamed about this. So that's kind of what I'm. So when you say not suppressed, you don't mm. mean like. Um, when you say not suppressed, you don't mean people should always act on their urges, but they should not be ashamed of them. Right. They can talk about how they feel. They can express how they feel, and um, give voice maybe. Yes and legitimacy yeah. to feelings. There's nothing wrong with feelings. And once you start feeling that there is something wrong with who you are or how you feel naturally, that's when there's a lot of um, angst and depression. And um, we were hit with a, not only did I have a, a, a barrage of questions for you, but our audience also had, had a, a lot of questions. Oh, okay. For you. Um, right. So I would love to kind of ask, um, because we kind of talked a little bit about the male sex drive, but there, um, and clearly testosterone plays a large role in that. I was speaking to some of my friends about this, and I, I've got one friend that I spoke to. He's very athletic, and he told me that to prepare for a holiday that he was going on, he started taking exogenous testosterone, and he said that his sex drive went through the roof to the point that he couldn't make it through a day at work without masturbating. In his office, but um, that's nor that is normal for a lot of men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be in the office. He could go <laughs> in the bathroom stall. Right, or I don't know right. exactly where. Sure, sure. But is he? Did he? Okay, go on. Hmm. Oh no! So I was just going to say, this is your good friend. 
This is this is my good friend. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what's his name? First and last name? Or? I, I, I've got just in case his boss listens to this, and he's in his office one day, and he's thinking, I don't know where to sit. Um, but I would love to kind of ask. Um, so, if you take testosterone, and for instance, you load and you give a load of it to women, how would that then change their sex drive? Yeah. Okay. But first things mm. first. So, your yes. friend did yes. he have low testosterone to start with? Uh, he told me he said he went to a doctor's and he said he was on the lo- in a in a normal clinical range, but at the low end. Okay, so because normally, if you're in the healthy normal range for a man, you will not have an increase in aggression or sex drive by mm. increasing your testosterone. Nor can you predict anyone's like physical aggression or sex drive from. Uh, individual differences in testosterone level. Like when I'm teaching, I'd always say to my students, like I couldn't, you know, if I knew everybody's testosterone level in this room, it wouldn't really, unless it was super low or super high, you know, I really couldn't tell that much more about them. It doesn't give you a lot of information. Right. But if you go from pretty low to even normal or high end of normal, yeah, you're going to, you're going to, um, you should experience some sort of a change there. So, which brings me to women who of course have very, many women have very healthy, I shouldn't say healthy, um, have very strong sex drives. Um, Some women masturbate every day. However, men, this is a a very robust finding and it's not going to be a surprise to anyone. Men masturbate way, way more um, than women do. They think about sex way more than women do. They want more sexual partners than women do. They, uh, and one of the really interesting changes that happens on average, and there's a lot of variation in experience here, but trans men, which are um, females who transition with uh, either, you know, with or without hormones, but if they transition with hormones, that means that someone who grew up um, as a girl and, um, then went through say female puberty, if they then wanted to translate transition to living as a man, they would take male typical levels of testosterone. Mm. So for, um, adult females, this can be really overpowering because while again, women have can have very strong sex drives they once they go on a male level of testosterone they then um many report that the experience is something they couldn't even have imagined mm. how obsessed with sex they become and of course this is very intense at first because it's like when you first are in when you're in adolescence and your sex drive starts going up for a lot of young men, that is an overwhelming experience because you're not really sure how to deal with it. Maybe you don't know how to talk to women. You're afraid of your own desires and, um, or you're just like masturbating all over the place. So for women who are, I'll just say if, if they're going to transition, I'll, I'll just call them females. Um, they say that they went from you know what was a normal se- what they thought was a normal sex drive to just thinking about sex all the time wanting sex all the time and and fantasizing 
about male body parts or female mm. body parts if they're attracted to females. Um, and the, they, the relationship, the sexual relationship became less about the human um, interaction and more about the body, which I thought was very interesting. And this is also interesting because for, for females who resented male sexual interest in them, like men staring at their breasts or whatever, these trans men started doing that and behaving in ways that they had previously thought were just guys being jerks. This is part of what has given me a lot more empathy for men because it's so clear that the hormone is incredibly powerful and and that women don't understand. They ju typically judge, which is understand that part is understandable if you're on the receiving end of it or if you've been, you know, sexually harassed or even sexually assaulted. So that's understandable. So also males who then transition to living as females describe the opposite and that their sex drive really plummets, but they, they enjoy, they say a lot of the time they enjoy sex more, they have better orgasms. So, uh, they have longer lasting, more full body orgasms off of testosterone and on estrogen. Mm. And the, uh, on testosterone orgasm is often described as shorter, uh, more intense at the peak and more focused on the genitals. So yeah, there's really dramatic and interesting changes that occur before the body changes. And that's important because this is not just about physical changes to the, um, to appearance that make people feel more comfortable sexually. This seems to be, uh, behavioral effects um, in the brain essentially. And there's also obviously effects, um, on the gen in the genitals that can change the way sex feels. And you raised just one very good point, but there about low testosterone in for instance, in the male sex drive, are there any other effects that would be kind of known if a man was suffering from very low levels of testosterone? <sighs> well, it depends how low. Like if it's really low, there's going to be, the testicles will be smaller. And, you know, if you go on testosterone, your testicles will shrink, like well, even sort of start shriveling up a little bit. Because when you go on testosterone and you're taking it from the outside, that sends a signal to your brain that you've got enough in your body. And the signal from the brain is to the testicles is decreased. So the testicles kind of go offline. You can't make sperm anymore because you need local testosterone to do that. Um, so, um, yeah, so a lot of men who have low testosterone will lack energy, will lack, um, sex drive, will have obviously erectile difficulties, but uh, much of the time it's, um, due to health issues. Obesity is a big one, lack of exercise, smoking, those all contribute to reduced testosterone. One thing about obesity is that fat cells have an enzyme that converts testosterone into estrogen. So all estrogen mm -hmm. comes from testosterone and it's converted by the enzyme aromatase and fat cells have a, have a lot of aromatase. So men who put on a lot of extra fat can then have the, um, higher estrogen levels, which can, um, in essence, reduce their testosterone, uh, levels and, uh, interfere with some of those kind of traits that they might otherwise want. 
Are you familiar with the NoFap community? FAP, F-A-P? F-A-P, yeah. Is the F for female? No, it just means abstinence from masturbation, a, a group for chronic masturbators. Oh, but, oh, this is a very old mm. uh, idea, based on an old mm. idea. that, And I, I read some really old papers when I was doing research for the book um, that – Oh, yeah, that hypothesized that abstaining from masturbation will increase uh, energy, sexual vigor, and that uh, it, it brings a clarity to one's life. Yes, yes. Which, and, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say there was a paper out of China, but it's now retracted. But if someone wants to get a lot of publicity... Uh, yes. Then these people out there, they they ran a study and they basically said in this paper that on day seven, they found people's testosterone levels increased 140 or something percent. It's now been retracted. So take of that what you will. But there's a lot of interest in that, that line of research. So, yeah, I mean, I know that this is supposed to be a myth, but it makes it makes some kind of sense to me, because if you're not. Uh, from an evolutionary point of view, if you're not getting, if you're not having orgasms, if you're not ejaculating, maybe the reason is you're not getting a mate. I mean, so I don't know about masturbation and sort of pre, uh, say hunter gatherers. Um, there's, I, yeah, that's actually, this is a really good question. Um, but if there's, haven't been ejaculations, it would make some sort of sense to, increase competitiveness, increase status seeking, you know, engage in behaviors that would make it more likely for you to get a mate and being really horny might help, you know, because sure. being really wanting sex motive, obviously like everyone can see this. And if anyone denies this, I think they're crazy. Everyone can see that men way more than women go to extreme lengths to get sex. They can you know, design their entire life around getting sex, their entire career. They're, you know, there's a lot of people and men in jail for trying to get sex in ways that they shouldn't have. It's not every man, but it's, you don't have women doing that, like almost at all. Um, so yeah. So the point is, I know that that's supposed to be a myth and it probably is, but I would like to see a really well-designed study and uh, see exactly if there, if there are any changes, if, if men habitually masturbate and then they stop for like two weeks, what happens to their behavior, to their testosterone? I was thinking about dominance hierarchies. Yeah. And um, I was thinking about kind of what would happen if, for instance, you drained the food, the top of the dot dominance hierarchy of the testosterone or you injected the bottom or the middle so done in monkeys oh. does not it won't change not at all okay so there's a few things the this i think illustrates a very important point about ho hormone behavior relationships they don't occur in a vacuum they occur in a complex social environment that individuals have been developing in for their whole lives. You have your in utero environment, which is actually incredibly important. The amount of testosterone you get in utero has very profound, lifelong, permanent effects on your brain that shape 
basically who you are uh, as a masculine person, sort of what your masculinity is like. And I just have to throw in something about gay men because people seem, people think, and in certain ways, this is, there's some truth to this, but people think that uh, gay men are more feminine than heterosexual men. And in, you know, yes, they're attracted to women, uh, sorry, they're attracted to men. So in that sense, there's something more characteristically feminine about that. However, they sexually are like other men. They're just like heterosexual men. Um, they want to have a lot of sexual partners. They have a really high libido and they can have a lot of sexual partners because they don't have women putting the brakes on. So I'm bringing this up because that is a masculine behavior, right? That sexual nature, which does seem to be, um, sort of the stage for that is set in utero. Uh, and there's no evidence that gay men have any less testosterone exposure than heterosexual men and their masculinity is different, but they have the core masculine nature, which is the sexual nature. Um, and then you grow up in a certain culture with certain values in a certain family. You have your, your genes, your personality, all of that brings you to the moment where you get your exogenous testosterone. It first of all is a long acting hormone that acts on gene transcription. Once the g level of a certain protein is changed, it just doesn't go and have um, immediate effects. And if it, when it does um, eventually shape behavior, it does so in a complex social environment. So that if you you can still recognize who's dominant to you, uh, and you in that environment. What's been shown in monkeys is that injecting testosterone in a low-ranking monkey does not cause him to ascend the dominance hierarchy because he will still get his ass kicked by those males who are dominant to him. They're not dominant because they have more testosterone. They're dominant because they have the personality, they have the body size, they have whatever is necessary. And the whole social structure is geared around maintaining that dominance uh, those dominance relationships, unless somebody kind of gets what they need, which includes personality, body, and yeah, some testosterone level, but the lower ranking guy who monkey who gets more testosterone starts beating up the ones who are subordinate to him. So he does become more aggressive in monkeys. Um, and he gets, if he gets a lot of testosterone and he, uh, does not in fact ascend the dominance hierarchy, what would probably happen is he would become injured if if he tried to behave in ways he's subordinate for a reason. You don't change that with testosterone. Testosterone might, you know, increase his likely his um confronting a threat rather than retreating from a threat. But if you mm. confront a threat and you don't have what it takes to win, that's a bad idea. So this brings up the point that what really matters in these dominance relationships are changes in the face of confrontation. And that confrontation might be a physical confronta confrontation. It might be like you make a joke about another guy that's kind of a joke, kind of not a joke, and you do it in public. You stare somebody down. You tail somebody. Um, you know, you drive in a way that kind of try you try to intimidate a guy who cut you off. All of those, or you're just playing chess. All of that, those are potentially dominance interactions. And your testosterone can change 
um, in the face of those interactions. And the way that it changes uh, has to do with how you're doing in conf- and whether you should be confronting or retreating from confrontation. I mean, it, so it's complicated, but I think that those changes in um, social environments in the real world are really uh, the most powerful effectors of uh, changes in hierarchy. Sorry, that was a long well, answer. I love that. I love that. I just have to ask you just one more question. Um about uh about about uh this kind of my my little theory by you um, actually I'll, I'll come back to that i'll come back to that I'll, I'll ask a very popular question that that was asked okay if my sports team loses and i i have to say my sports team has been terrible for an, for about 10 years okay <laughs> does that affect my testosterone levels Okay. First of all, no one should worry about this because the level of testosterone that that changes, it doesn't affect like your sex drive or really anything else. But if you're depressed, which you probably are when your team loses, which is kind of ridiculous in a way, you know, you have to admit it's like it has nothing to do with you. Um, but people do, I started, I did this for my dissertation. I studied this exact thing. I studied, um, I used to play baseball. So I was really um, into the Red Boston Red Sox, and I studied fan, like avid Red Sox fans, and had them listen to these famous um, play-by-plays of really famous games where we won or lost, and then I measured their testosterone. I didn't get any results from that. Um, however, there's lots of literature showing that that happens where if you're actually playing the sport or just watching and like you are probably someone who would have a testosterone change because you're probably like jumping at the TV and freaking out and yelling and stuff. Is that correct? Well, th- I was, yeah, th- this is definitely my case, but this is also very applicable to my friend who keeps masturbating in his office because <laughs> he supports an even worse team than me. So, I, you know, he's well, does he masturbate less after he loses, after his team loses? <laughs> he told me, he said he could, hasn't had an erection in years, so I must be the <laughs> So, no, you do. It's interesting. And this, the reason this happens where you can have fish, this happens in cichlid fish who watch other fish fight. They will have a testosterone increase watching other fish fight. And the reason is that from an evolutionary point of view, you have to be primed for competition. If you see males competing around you, it's not just fish. that's a cue for you to be ready to face a threat. Okay. So if you have a history of losing, you're a loser. And then it's adaptive for you, for your testosterone to go down in the face of threat. So there are a lot of guys who'll be like, yeah, would you say, would you say, and they got their chest out and they're in somebody's face and they're like, come on, come on. That is facing the threat, obviously. Or you could just say, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Like, I'm scared. I'm running away. So you can feel like amped up. I'm a person who, if someone challenges me and I think they're being a bully, I'm in their face. Like, I get it. I feel it. And uh, I understand that feeling of like motivated to confront. A lot of people don't have that feeling. They have fear which is obviously very different. And this is associated with changes in testosterone and another hormone, cortisol, which has to do with energy 
allocation, which some people call a stress hormone, that can go up and cortisol. Cortisol can sometimes go up and testosterone can go down. And that seems to change the brain in ways that affect how you respond next time to keep you alive, essentially. But if you have a record of winning, then you have confidence and you face your threat. And that's how you ascend the dominance hierarchy. And that's how, and that does have to do not with permanently high testosterone, but with these short-term increases that seem to change the way uh, neurons communicate. And that can happen via testosterone because it's changing protein production and neuronal uh, connections, essentially. That's interesting. And when I was reading through um, some of these NoFap uh, communities in the build-up to, to this episode, yeah. a number of people, anecdotally, of course, so, so take of it what you will, say that they notice that suddenly they start staring people in the eyes, you know, where usually they would look down. Suddenly they'd start hold eye contact and uh, you know, wait until the other person would look away. Yeah, I mean, of course it could be placebo, but mm. I'm not dismissive of this, these, uh, I think this is interesting. Like, and mm. I, I wouldn't be dismissive until I see the actual research mm-hmm. and until I see research that shows that this is a bunch of crap. Um, I think it's interesting if this is what people are saying and yeah, I'd wait for the evidence. Uh, how sure. big is this community? Oh, it's, it's a large community. It's a, from what I understand, this is quite the movement online, I have to say. But are they driving themselves crazy? I mean... I, to me, it seems like one of the reasons I've hypothesized why this works is because it seems to appeal to people that are really in crisis. So, you know, people that are master, like my friend, they, they masked chronic fappers. Oh, you mean they're addicted? They're like it's Certainly. like a por- pornography sure, um, sure, addiction. Sure. And then okay. it, to me, it seems no wonder why you know suddenly they report in that they can levitate and yeah. <laughs> well, because they're doing something else. They're not sure. like in their basement or whatever watching porn. Now they're connecting with other human beings. Maybe yeah. that has to. They... Right. Right. You know. So it sounds a little related to the incel community, where maybe you pops, have an identity. Um, have you had Will Costello on? I am. I, I am aware of him. I. I, I He's may, awesome. Know Talk yeah. to him about incels. Okay. He's. You would love him. Okay. I he's will, really will. funny. He's really smart. He's so clear, and he's just a PhD student, but he's fantastic. I will. I will make a note of that. Um, you mentioned that you were kind of when you were faced with confrontation, that your response was to fight. Should I say? Um, well, it's to not definitely not if I believe in something I'm not backing down. Amazing. And I don't like bullies. I really don't like bullies. On that note, what has it been like teaching biology in the last 5 6 7 years? <laughs> Wait, do you know what happened to me? Oh, I Carol, I do my research as you. I okay. Know that. I know that. What has it been like? Awesome, I have to say amazing because my under, I will start to cry. Because I had have had um just the most wonderful undergraduates. Harvard is an interesting place, but there are they do select students not just for IQ, but sort of all around um personality, I guess. And they're just a lot of amazing kids and Nobody teaches what I teach because they're scared to do it because 
you know, I teach about sex and gender and transitioning and intersex conditions and sex differences, you know, in addition to, um, health issues and, you know, other stuff that, um, doesn't have to do with sex, but people are afraid to do that. But if you do it in a way that's really open and honest and evidence-based and you have a good dynamic in the classroom, you can do anything. And that's what I think I, that's what I was doing. I was good at it. And, um, but, you know, I spoke the truth not in the classroom, but when I spoke it on Fox News, do you guys have, you don't have that, right? I, I've seen, I've seen that. No, okay, so we so, don't have you, but I know. So it's definitely a more conservative news outlet. And uh, yeah, people did not like at Harvard, didn't like that I went on there and said that there's two sexes, you know, just told the truth. Right. And there's no, no one is going to for, they were trying basically to get me to say that sex is on a spectrum. Spectrum is beautiful. People can change their sex, men or women, you know, et cetera. I'm not saying any of that, but the, and the reason is a, I don't not, I'm a science educator and I'm here to describe how the world works to the best of my ability, but B, it doesn't help anyone. So all of this distorting of the science, which is happening now in in at harvard at academic uh in academic journals um that is completely counterproductive in my view to actual social justice which needs to be based in reality nobody's rights should hang on myths and untruths so i'm pretty adamant about that and um yeah so it's sucked just getting having my colleagues in the sciences at Harvard, it's very painful. I've been there for a long time. I had a lot of relationships and people are scared shitless. They are scared of losing their jobs. They're scared of being branded transphobic. Um, and they should be scared <laughs> because, because they, you know, people are losing their jobs and all that stuff is happening. Um, so it's bad. It's bad. And everybody who can should be defending people who are trying to tell the truth, even if you disagree with them. You should support everybody's right to tell the truth as they see it, um, support academic freedom. And uh, all that stuff is really important to me because we're losing what we, you know, the best tools that we have to understand how the world works, which is clear language, open discussions about even when you disagree and even when you're offended. And um, yeah, good research and teaching, which we're uh, losing. Sure. And I would love to ask because um, I've watched so much of your content and I've read a lot of your work. And the two things that come to my mind is, you seem to be both a brilliant academic and also someone. Um, and I, I may be wrong with this. I, I, I don't know you personally, Crying. of course. What? Yeah, someone that that fe perhaps feels things uh, deeply. I would say, what was perhaps. the toll? Yeah, perhaps. What was the toll that that whole experience that did it take on you? Because it must have been tough. So I am going to get graphic about that toll. So anyone who. I'm not, I don't like, um, uh, trigger warnings because there's no evidence that they actually help, but I am going to talk about some difficult things. It was brutal just being attacked by people I have had long-term, again, lo really good long-term relationships with, or even just not being supported by Harvard, who I've 
you know, an institution I've served and done a very good job for over 20 years. And I also got my PhD there. Um, that destroyed me for a while. And I had to take a semester off. I became severely depressed. And I, and this, I'm going to say this because it's very common in people who went through what I went through. And I didn't go through anything half as like so many people have had it much, much worse than I did. Kathleen Stock, I don't know if you know yeah. um, she is in the UK, had it much, had a much longer, sort of more severe um situation. And many people do. Uh, but so I just became severely depressed and I had like really intense and constant suicidal ideation. Uh It's not, and I, this is, I found it actually fascinating, but disturbing at the same time because I didn't want to kill myself at all, but I had these, like this obsession with suicide and imagery and not really voices, but I did feel like I was kind of losing my shit a little bit there. And, um, my family was very supportive and I got therapy and I went on medication. It was scary, but it was also, it really was fascinating to sort of enter that world, which I had never been in. I'd been like sort of, you know, depressed before, but not like this and not with I that kind of intrusive thoughts. Um, so it's not to be taken lightly. It's easy to tell people to speak out and tell the truth, but the toll that people pay is emotionally it's you know in terms of mental health it's very high and in terms of um practical consideration if you you know need an income and you you know it's hard but the more i should just say the more people who do it the easier it gets because we now know that calling someone transphobic doesn't mean anything anymore it just means you have a certain set of political beliefs probably um that have nothing to do with even dislike of transgender people you know um a lot of this stuff, with particularly with gender, I think the tide is now turned. I'm convinced about it. I, I no longer see a lot of the madness that I did three or four years ago. And, and one of the things... Well, you're I not over here. No. I mean, it's... You get so many politically-minded people that try to advance careers through a lot of this stuff. I do, I do really believe that there, there, there is a whole lot of careerism within that kind of business. Yeah, no, I think it's um, protecting careers. It's a fear of losing everything that the all these people at Harvard who are you know famous and have achieved so much and are respected. It's very easy for all that to just go poof by supporting the wrong person or saying the wrong thing. So from that point of view, you know, it makes sense. The environment inside the university is not one that supports telling the truth. It supports Mm. diversity, equity, and inclusion, which means don't offend anybody, make sure everybody feels safe and welcome. And that's just not my attitude at all. My students are offended and it's okay. And they know it. (laughs) Like that's part of learning. It's like learning the truth sometimes hurts. It's a growth process. And that's how they become mature adults who can deal with, you know, variety of views in the world and learn to figure out which ones are true and have, you know, interesting conversations. There's just been far too many people that are willing to say, stop that right now. There's just been far, far too few people that are willing to kind of stand up and and tell the truth. And I, I applaud you for it. And I really, really have had my concerns about the field of biology and the threat that even bio biology teachers 
in the last yeah number of years i really worried about them i i thought yeah no you well, should be yeah. you should be because it but i have to say from my point of view i'm glad that it happened now because mm. you know i um i have said it's like popping is it um you have to kind of get all that bad stuff out to heal and you realize you don't want to be in a environment where you're not supported or around people who would throw you under the bus um, and sacrifice their own values if they even had them in the first place. So I don't have a lot of respect for that behavior. I understand it, but I, it's not, I don't want to work in that environment. Sure. Sure. I, I appreciate you're a very busy woman. If I can just finish off with just some, yeah, yeah. some very quick questions. Um, just just on that note, I notice now that you're actually working with Steven Pinker. Uh, yeah. Certainly a man that is, I've admired for, for many, many, many years. Certainly as someone that that has said things uh, that has, has offended a few people. And, and usually I've, I've never disagreed with him, uh, which is always a good sign of intellectual honesty. What's it been like working with, with Steve? So I started working with Steve when I was a graduate student, and that was ages ago. Um, I was a, a teaching assistant for his big psychology class. And what I really, what drew me to Steve is that he is a role model for me in terms of, uh, first of all, intellectually, just being so committed to the truth regardless of the implications. So he will follow the evidence wherever it leads. And he's very um, bold in terms of discussing what those implications are. And he has taken a lot of flack for that sometimes. And he, you know, it, that doesn't intimidate him, <laughs> you know, partly because he has a large platform at this point. Um, so I just, I respected that sort of fierce commitment to knowledge and the truth and that meticulousness in his writing and his speech. And he's just, you know, he's brilliant and he's bold. And he's also interested in obviously a lot of the kinds of issues that I'm interested in. The blank slate had a, his, you know, early book had a big impact on me and thinking how I thought about sex differences. And um, he's kind of, you know, I've, kept in touch with him, of course, and seen him around over the years. But then he really, more than anyone else at Harvard, um, you know, he gave me a new office. He took me into his department. He stood up for me. He counseled me. He And I, you know, it was a really, it's been a difficult time. And he, if it weren't for him, I, I really would not be at Harvard anymore. And I am because of him. And, um, he's a really generous human being. People don't know that about him. He's not only like fiercely committed to academic freedom and he is because he knows it is the way to promote, uh, human flourishing. And I agree with him. That is why he does this. Um, he's a very, very generous human being and it's just not, he, the flack that he gets is just totally wrongheaded and not fair. He helps a lot of people like me. Tell these guys where they can connect with you and anywhere else that you would like to send them or any closing masters. Um, so I'm, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at Hoovlet, H-O-O-V-L-E-T. I have a website, which 
I made myself and I try to maintain myself and um, I think it's pretty good. Um, it's carolhoven.com and Carol has an E on the end. So it's C-A-R-O-L-E-H-O-O-V-E-N.com. And I have like six posts on Instagram. They're very good posts. One is of my cat and who's I think still sitting right here. Does the cat still have his nuts? Oh, it's a her. It's a she. Oh, there you go. I live along with (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) Oh, no. Lola, look up here, honey. (laughs) You're more of a cat person than a dog person. I know, I am. Um, And, oh, yeah. If you like my book, go review it on Amazon. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I have to say... Your book almost convinced me to to take a trip out to Uganda, so I, I which I loved reading about. So I, I uh, wow, I, we, it's not easy to see the chimps. No, not really. No. I mean, okay. you can. You could go yeah. see the gorillas. That's a little easier. But if okay. you do go to Kanye, if you go to Uganda to see the chimps, let me know. I'll hook you up. All right. Okay. I'll I'll keep the machete under my pillow just like you did. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, the last question we sign off all our podcasts with. Yeah is what makes a life worth living? This is the question that when I was having all my ideation, I was struggling with. Mm. And uh, it's a good question. And I searched and searched and searched. And ultimately, the you said a good life because I would just say what makes life worth living period. What makes a, what makes a life worth living? Yeah. yeah. I would say there is not a good, there's a great philosophy paper that describes why this is the case. Um, there's no good reason not to, there's no good reason not to continue li- living. Even if it's true that nothing you do matters and won't matter a million years from now, then that really just means um, that if it really doesn't matter, there's no reason to take such a dramatic action that would result in you're not living. I'm not saying it very well. Um, but it's just that you have this life, you've been given this life. There just isn't a good reason to ever end it. So you should just keep living. And that's probably not the kind of answer that people give. But um, the other answer is just, of course, my answer is if there's any way that by me, that my life can reduce human suffering. Um, that's a worthy goal because people are alive and that you don't want them to suffer. So um, that's, yeah, my answer, I guess. What's yours? Do you already, do you probably tell it every, or do you t- ever talk about that? Or? I've never answered that question. Can you I'll answer it? No, not, not today. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, for, it's about the guests. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe if we meet up when you're in the UK. But um and we'll have but a Carol, this okay. has been such a pleasure. And I I love your book and I love you and I love all the work in which I love doing. you, Joe. I love you, Carol. Thank you. And I love your mom. <laughs> Say hi to your mom. Helen. Carol says hi. Helen. So, um... Hi, Helen. Thank you for producing, Joe. <laughs> Amazing. Let me just stop recording. 